Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. Sleep inertia is a term that refers to a transitional state between sleep and wake that coincides with impaired physical and cognitive performance, alertness, and mood. Sleep inertia is a universal experience, meaning that every human experiences it to some degree. Generally speaking, in most cases, sleep inertia dissipates within 15 to 30 minutes post-awakening. However, this is not always the case. For example, patients experiencing idiopathic hypersomnia commonly experience prolonged sleep inertia, with this lasting, at times, upwards of multiple hours. Despite the uptick in research on sleep inertia over the last decade, our understanding of sleep inertia is still relatively poor. Advancing the understanding of sleep inertia is critical, given that sleep inertia is a safety hazard at both the individual and societal levels. Establishing a better understanding of susceptibility to and moderating factors of sleep inertia may be most particularly relevant to professions that require on-call and or sustained operation schedules since these professions require workers to perform tasks soon after awakening that may be both cognitively and physically demanding. At present, research has shown that certain factors influence the length and severity of sleep inertia, including time of day, previous sleep-wake history, and sleep stage at awakening. Furthermore, experiencing a psychiatric disorder may augment one's perceived sleep inertia. For example, Kennedy and colleagues showed that individuals experiencing depression reported higher levels of sleep inertia on nearly every item of the sleep inertia questionnaire relative to healthy controls. Recently, Lundholm and colleagues advanced the understanding of sleep inertia by evidencing inter-individual trait-level differences in the symptoms of sleep inertia, such as sleepiness. Yet, there is a major need for more research evaluating the moderating influence of individual traits on sleep inertia. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Cassie Hilditch to discuss the recently published article in the journal Sleep Advances entitled Sex Differences in Perceptions of Sleep Inertia Following Nighttime Awakenings. This investigation aimed to advance the understanding of the relationships between individual traits and sleep inertia, as well as sleep inertia broadly, by investigating the role of biological sex on the subjective experience an objective cognitive manifestation of sleep inertia following nighttime awakenings. I hope you enjoy. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on Dr. Cassie Hilditch. Dr. Cassie Hilditch is currently working as a senior research associate through San Jose State University at the Fatigue Countermeasures Laboratory based at NASA Ames Research Center. She received her postdoctoral training at the Division of Sleep Medicine Harvard Medical School, and Brown University's Sleep for Science Research Laboratory. Her doctoral thesis, undertaken at the University of South Australia, focused on shift work, short naps, and sleep inertia. 
Dr. Hilditch's work continues to focus on applied research in this area with the aim to promote sleep health and to develop countermeasures to fatigue for use in safety-critical operations. So without further ado, let's dive into my discussion with Dr. Cassie Hilditch, unpacking their recent publication in the journal Sleep Advances, entitled Sex Differences and Perceptions of Sleep Inertia Following Nighttime Awakenings. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Cassie Hilditch, thank you so very much for joining me today, taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me on the Sleep Research Society podcast to discuss your research. You know, it's not always common for me to have a guest on that I have such longstanding friendship with, but you are one of my more longstanding relationships in the sleep and circadian research community, which makes this a fun and special episode for me. And I hope the same for you. But before we go into anything science-related or related to the background of Cassie Hilditch, I must ask, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Jesse. And uh, yeah, also see you as part of my sleep family from, from many years of sleep meetings. The journey that I've had myself has been really interesting, but it in some ways started with a shared friend, Kate Sprecker. And I think she was the first to introduce me to you. Shout out to Kate for introducing us and all the wonderful people in our Sleep and Circadian family. I thought about whether we were going to go through the list of names, but I don't think we should for the sake of time. What do you think? Yeah, it might be a few too many to mention, but uh, I think probably we met on a softball field, if uh, memory serves correct. I think that's spot on. I think it, if I remember, that may have been the Denver one or former guest, uh, maybe a recurrent guest in the future, Lisa Meltzer was like organizing that, helping organize that social event, bringing like Costco based goodies to the field, those types of things. Uh, The weird things we remember from the sleep conferences. Yeah, some may argue not the most important parts, but I think uh, still a very important part of the sleep meeting. So the the network of, of colleagues that you find along the way. Very true. And thank you to the Sleep Research Society for having those trainee events every year. They're a blast. But we're not here to talk about all the trainee events and social events and social ongoings that happen at the sleep conference. We're going to eventually talk about your research. But before that, we're going to talk about you. So Cassie, can you please tell us about your journey to sleep and circadian research to this point? Sure. Well, I can't say that I dreamt of being a sleep researcher since I was a little girl or anything like that, but sort of fell into sleep through what was effectively a sorting hat in my final year of physiology at at uni. You had to tick whether you wanted to work in a wet lab uh, with animals or with humans, and having not really enjoyed the repetitive nature of pipetting, definitely not enjoyed what you have to do to rats and mice to uh, as part of science. I ticked humans and I got sent to a sleep lab and that was my first exposure to anything to do with sleep and I've been in sleep or fatigue research ever since. Very cool. And it's been awesome to see your career blossom too. Uh, in particular, I know we'll dive into all things sleep inertia or as much as we can within our you know hour format or so. But For myself, as I've built this research program around idiopathic hypersomnia and obviously sleep inertia being a pervasive, debilitating symptom of that condition, it's been really awesome to see your program 
really blossom in the last six or seven years. And so I'm happy to not just use the platform today to talk about the research that you recently published, but I'll definitely plug some of the links in our show notes to your previous review and some of the other work as well, because it's been awesome. And it's an area that we need to explore further. So great job there and keep up the great work on that front. And I do know that you have hobbies and interests, and I know some of them. But for our listeners out there, when you're not pulling back the layers of sleep inertia and tackling fatigue and vigilance and all these amazing things, what do you like to do in your spare time? So I like hiking and backpacking. So anything to do with getting out in nature. I really like wildlife and animals as well. So most of my spare time gets taken up by a volunteer group that I work with, the Wildlife Rescue here in San Francisco. Uh, So we rescue, raise and release squirrels and opossums and any sort of critter that you might find sort of in your urban environment now that we've sort of built over their wild environment, they're sort of, you know, coexisting with us. So, yeah, that's a really rewarding experience to be part of that organization as well, but certainly takes up a lot of my time. No doubt. And I'm so glad that you informed us of that because I was going to say no Cassie Hilditch interview is complete unless there's a reference to a possum or an animal species or work there. I think I remember it's getting blurred and hazy. This may have been the Boston sleep conference. And I was like going to check out some other social scene, but I think you went and like checked out wildlife or went to the zoo or, or something like that. Is that right? Or am I blurring sleep conferences? Oh, I'm trying to think. I know in Boston, I think around that time I went on a whale watching trip, I think during the uh, the sleep <laughs> or just, just before or after the sleep meeting. That may have been it. And shout out to the whales. They make a recurring appearance. And shout out to Jackie Lane for bringing up the whales previously and, and Angus Burns as well. <laughs> so the whales on the East Coast, I guess, are the thing to do. You already mentioned that you did not aspire at a young age to be a sleep and or circadian researcher that you are now. So what did you aspire to be when you were a child? I think when I was really little, little I was... Uh, I wanted to be a firefighter that lived on a farm. Uh, Again, thinking that animals on a farm were there to be your friends and nothing more. And then during high school, I chose all my subjects based on becoming a journalist. And it wasn't until I did biology in my senior year of high school that I fell in love with science and completely changed what I did at university. But I did write for a music magazine. And so, yeah, I guess my dream was to, you know, write for Rolling Stone or something like that. And I guess I ended up writing for Sleep Advances instead. But uh, (laughs) and kind of coming back to your your almost famous reference at the start, that was kind of the, the dream lifestyle, you know, going on tour with a rock band or something. I was going to say, if you didn't steer us back to our pre-show discussion on Almost Famous, I was definitely there because obviously there was strong alignment with your interests and, oh, I'm going to forget his name, so I'm not even going to do it. Um, Was it Cameron Crow? We'll just pretend it's, it's Cameron Crow. It's been way too long. Yep. But uh, <laughs> you were aspiring down that road. And it's interesting. I actually, in my journey, I was writing for an affiliated web blog for ESPN for the Phoenix Suns, Valley of the Suns. And I always wanted to be a sports reporter and a journalist on that front. And that was actually my first major in undergrad was journalism. But as you said, I am not blogging 
for any sports group anymore and applying my writing skills for the never-ending blog of science, I guess is what we could say on that front, right? And it's nice that we get to apply that skill set, but sometimes I miss more frivolous writing and things like that, sometimes. Now, we've done a little bit of just the personality, and this is a scientific show, so we got to get to the research somehow. And here comes the bridge. We're going to bridge the science. And I like every part of the show, Cassie, I will say that, but I will say this is high up there on one of my favorite aspects of the show, which is the keyword association. And I've informed you of what this is, but as with all the past guests, the actual keywords, they weren't provided to you a priori. Uh, So the responses you're going to provide are very much hot off the cognitive press, as we like to say. As we discussed, you know, there's a wide range, a spectrum, if you will, of how to respond. It can be a single word response. It could be a sentence. It could be five minutes. However you like to respond, it is your world, Cassie. Are you ready for the keyword association? Ready as I'll ever be. I love it. So here it comes. First term, sleep, wake, transitioning. The brain waking up. I can dig that. Next word, vigilance. Sustained attention. Here's a term. On-call and sustained operations workers. Unsung heroes. I agree. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. And last term here to land our keyword association. Here it comes. Acute functional impairment. Even if it lasts a short time, if it's severe, then it's important. Ooh, I really like that response. I may have to use that for marketing. That was great. Well done. So that is our keyword association. And we've you know, prepared for flight, if you will. We've revved our engine. Right now, listeners, what we're going to do is we're going to have Dr. Cassie Hilditch provide a 10,000-foot view of her recently published investigation in Sleep Advances entitled Sex Differences in Perception of Sleep Inertia Following Nighttime Awakenings. And then after that, after we talk about kind of the rationale for it, high-level discussion on the methodology and the results, then we'll dive a little bit deeper uh, into some of the implications, the findings themselves, and the nuance of the investigation. So, Cassie, you've been doing the sleep inertia stuff for for some time now. Can you please inform the listeners what fueled you to perform this specific investigation? So, we had uh, recently completed a study in the lab looking at light as a countermeasure to sleep inertia based on on on-call scenarios. And then the pandemic happened. We already had funding to extend that work and look at other countermeasures such as uh, temperature manipulation. But uh, because our lab was closed, we then had to pivot. But I think we made uh, sort of good use of that time by pivoting to a translational study based on our lab study. So going from taking from what we learned in the lab and applying that in the field. And we knew we wanted to also look at potential individual differences. So we made a point of sort of boosting our sample size as well. So typically in the lab, you know, you have about 15 people or so in sort of as a minimum in studies, but we wanted to increase that sample size to sort of drill a bit deeper into uh, some other questions regarding sleep inertia. Very cool. And 
for my kind of read of it, you know, again, this is a, I don't want to say problematically understudied because it's too charged to say problematically, but we'll just say understudied area of research. And we don't really know kind of individual characteristics, moderating factors, how people, we know that people have inter-individual differences in sleep inertia, uh, the experience itself, but we don't really, we haven't really drilled down specific characteristics and how they moderate. And to me, I think that's what you were trying to accomplish here was just to look at it. What sort of characteristics can we start with where there may be differences? Was that kind of the main aim for this investigation? Yeah. And, and as you say, we're still in the very early stages of sleep inertia, sleep inertia research. Uh, I do remember my first sleep meeting 10 years ago when I had my poster on sleep inertia and no one else had anything on sleep inertia. And I was always the only one that had my, my little poster <laughs> trying to wave the sleep inertia flag. And now 10 years later, if you you know, search the index of the sleep meeting, there's a whole bunch on sleep inertia. So it's really exciting that it's uh, become more popular to study, which is great. And in terms of what we wanted to do with this study is, you know, we, we know from prior studies about some of the conditions that can exacerbate sleep inertia, uh, which I think you mentioned at the start of the episode. <laughs> but just as a recap, sort of um, the time of day you wake up or the time of day relative to your body clock that you wake up, your prior sleep-wake history and the sleep stage that you wake from. But we don't know a lot about the sort of individual differences. And this is, you know, sort of where just sleep and circadian research is going too, right? We know that if you don't get enough sleep, then your performance will be impaired. But there are some people who are more vulnerable or resilient to sleep loss. So this is sort of the next frontier for sleep inertia research too. Uh, and we wanted to we wanted to continue that research and look at an individual difference like sex differences just as a very sort of basic starting spot uh, to look at individual differences in sleep inertia. Fantastic. And and as you said, this type of research is really important because now we can start to identify those who may be more vulnerable in certain situations, right? So we've identified some factors, but what about people in these factors? We're not all going to experience them the same. And this is going to be really important when developing strategies, protocols, whatever it may be, helping individuals just from recommendation standpoints of like, hey, you may be at a higher risk at this time. Like we may need to do this a little bit differently than somebody else, or be careful as you're doing X, Y, and Z. You know, this is what the research says, and you kind of fall into this category. That stuff's really helpful to know. And we just don't have any information on, on sleep inertia. So I think biological sex is, is a great place to start on that front. And just kind of generally high level, big picture, what sort of protocol design did you employ or utilize for this investigation? So we based it on the study that we had done in the lab. Uh, so the the methods are very similar, just sort of translated to an at-home an at-home scenario. So it's a within-subject um, study, and we wanted to replicate or simulate an on-call scenario where people are asleep during their normal uh, sleep time, and then they get a call, and they have to respond to that call and then do something that requires some sort of cognitive processing as soon as they wake up. So 
This is a typical scenario for emergency service workers, for example, potentially doctors or nurses that, you know, sort of work on call. And once they get the call, they have to respond to that within a very short time frame. Beautiful. I was really impressed by the ability to bring kind of the lab to home, right? I think you used kind of an ambulatory PSG. I think it was, was it Prodigy or, or something like that in the home environment? And there's obviously a lot of complexity when you're working with participants, getting the setup, making sure that they can operate the machine correctly. And we don't have to go into all the details. We can steer the listeners back to the paper. But I think there was, if I remember correctly, like a, a week or so or six days of actigraphy captured sleep, uh, largely to assess, again, as you pointed out, the historical sleep leading into the actual experimental paradigm where you want to see what sleep inertia presents. You need to have that historical sleep for sure, right? But then you had this this acclimation night with the PSG equipment. And at the same time, you kind of did a trial run, if you will, and exposed the participants to the next day conditions where they're going to actually have to turn on like a camera, things like that, and communicate with study team. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's a pretty good summary of leading up to that experimental night on that adaptation night on night six, as you mentioned, we um, made a real point of testing all the equipment, setting up all the equipment, both so that the participant could be familiarized with it, but also everyone's bedroom setup is different. So we had to sort of get creative as to where to even place certain objects. Not everyone has a bedside table, that kind of thing. And we monitored them remotely. So we had sort of like a webcam camera that we were we were able to turn on and off and to rotate as needed as well. But it meant that we could observe the participant whenever they were performing the test. So it wasn't sort of fully a field study where you just give people equipment and instructions and sort of cross your fingers that they'll do the right thing somewhere between a lab and a field study where it's a sort of very controlled field study, if you will. It did take a lot of logistics to set all of that up, but it, um, I think it worked well in the end. And it's, it's amazing how many wires and, uh, charges and all the sort. So everything you think about that you have in your lab, having to put that all in a box and give it to someone else to set up. So also very much appreciate the uh, participants and their willingness to troubleshoot the technology with us at the same time. It's just amazing at this point in my growth professionally as a researcher, just learning about all the minutia and complexity that goes into a single study that the outsider never really gets exposure to. But that's often like the really important stuff. As you said, the creativity, like I want to do this, but how in the world am I going to do this? So kudos to your team, kudos to the participants. That's outstanding. And this experimental night, so they had some baseline assessments and there's this battery of objective and subjective measures that you delivered. I believe it was the the five-minute validated PVT and then also a, um, I'm blanking on it right now, but a... Uh, Descending subtraction task. Nailed it. We'll say DST for the future. And then you had two subjective measures to capture, you know, the subjective experience upon awakening. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We made sure that we had some 
subjective measures as well as objective measures. But one of the challenges with measuring sleep inertia is that the time course is so can be very short and you want to sort of have as fine a resolution as possible by having frequent testing points during that sort of first 30 minutes. So that then limits you as to how many different tasks you can put in each test bout, which then sort of slows the progress of sleep inertia research generally because you run the study once and you look at vigilant attention and then you'd have to run the study again to look at a different executive function, for example, or you're making your tasks so short that they're not necessarily going to be as sensitive as uh, longer validated measures. But in this case, we were able to sort of focus on two different objective cognitive tasks and two aspects of subjective reports, so sleepiness and then uh, a series of mood scales. Beautiful. And poor participants, uh, they were awoken twice during the night, I believe. I think it was 45 minutes after their bedtime and then 135 minutes or so after their bedtime. And you ended up delivering the tasks. And again, as you pointed out, you have to be very mindful of how long these things are, how much time it's going to take to complete because you don't want to run into that second time point. You also want to provide sufficient time for them to return to sleep. All those things I'm sure were intimately calculated uh, and thinking about the design. So, so kudos there. And again, to the listeners, go back. Cassie and her team colleagues put in a phenomenal protocol schematic in there that really neatly visually presents a very seemingly complex protocol. So very nice job there. And generally speaking, what did you find from the investigation? So we found that on uh, scales of alertness that women were more likely to rate their sleepiness as higher after awakening compared to men. So before they went to sleep during the baseline testing, they were rating their sleepiness as the same. And then in the test points following an awakening, so during the sleep inertia period, women rated their sleepiness as higher than men. Both men and women rated their sleepiness as higher than when they went to bed, so both indicating some self-perception of a sleep inertia effect, that the, the sort of magnitude of change in women was was greater. But interestingly, on our cognitive test, so our reaction time test or a vigilant attention, the PBT, and our DST or subtraction task, which is a measure of working memory, uh, we didn't see any differences between men and women on those tasks in terms of during that sleep inertia period. So it seems that even though there was this difference between the sexes in the sort of self-perception of sleep inertia, there, that wasn't reflected in the objective measures. Beautifully put. And that to me was the real meat and potatoes, the quinoa berries of this paper. And it was it was fascinating to me on many levels because as you neatly show in the results, the sleep inertia is captured objectively. Uh, the performance is degraded. We can see that across the time points. It seems to get a little bit better objectively at the later time points or the later assessment, which makes sense, but it never gets back to baseline. But you see that across the full sample uh, and the objective measures and the subjective measures as well. But then the only spot you see a divergence between the sexes is in the subjective responses. And we'll touch upon it later as to why that may have been or kind of linking it to some other things as well. But did you 
approach this investigation with any sort of a priori hypothesis about that? Or was that more of like a, huh, that's interesting. I think for the latter, that it was, uh, yeah, something that we we weren't necessarily expecting. But yeah, we definitely thought that was interesting. And, and to your point earlier about being able to tailor recommendations to people, you know, being able to see this come out as differences is really interesting. But what we can't conclude from this particular study is how that self-perception influences decision-making, for example. So given that women rated their sleepiness as, as higher than men, does that mean that they might be more risk-averse in terms of making decisions based on that self-perception of their sleepiness at that time? We can't answer that with this current study, but I think that's something that's a really interesting question that's come out of it. Very cool. And I'm I'm mad at you because you're supposed to be able to answer every single question out there with your one study. So go back and, and reassess your data. No, I'm just kidding, of course. Um, yeah, no, fantastic. <laughs> and again, as you pointed out, this is a launching pad. And sometimes we just kind of have to be appropriate with our design and appropriate with our analyses, but they're very much exploration for future research to build upon. And I think this is a really nice foundational study for for more to build upon because Again, this is a limitation of sleep science in general. We often have to work with smaller sample size when we're doing PSG equipment. So I think we only had 32 data points, if you will. It was an equal sex distribution, which is nice. But hopefully, you know, we can expand upon that and get more diverse cohorts and and really dig into the interaction between individual characteristics, whether that be age, ethnicity, race, sex, gender, all the different things, and really peel back the layers. And I know that's where you want to go with this. But again, we can't do it in just a single study. So fantastic job there. And I think that prepares us to to get our weed whackers out and go a little bit deeper into the weeds. When approaching this and then talking to you about it, despite sleep inertia being this universal thing that we all experience to some degree, I certainly think the layperson, shout out to the layperson who happens to tune into the SRS podcast who's not connected to sleep and circadian research. I know you're out there. So, so th- shout out to you. This is for you. Um, but even within our intimate community of researchers and clinicians, the concept of sleep inertia still isn't really well understood, but I think it'd be really helpful to have kind of an even playing field for us to build upon. And so I love that I can call you the expert now in sleep inertia for you, Cassie, given what you've unearthed, given kind of your time in the past decade with this construct, what is sleep inertia? It's a great question. And I feel like I have to rewrite the sentence on how to describe it for every paper so that I don't plagiarize myself. Uh, And I should have a better one sentence, uh, quick answer for you. But I define sleep inertia as the time period after awakening during which you experience sleepiness and impaired performance. I think that, I think that does it. Yeah. And honestly, like, I kind of love the way you led with that because it's often like the same words, but just delicately moved around because I always feel like I'm going to plagiarize myself or somebody else, but I want to say the same thing that it's this like transition from sleep to wake that is associated with some sort of impairment in either a domain of cognition, physical performance, or mood. And oftentimes I try and make it a little bit more like flavorful, but I generally steal your words is what I do when I look at at your research and I just try and find a way to make it 
my own. Yeah, you can throw in grogginess every now and then. That's the actually the describing it as grogginess upon awakening. I think when I did a literature search probably many years ago now on whether anyone had published on a grogginess scale, no one had. And so I included it in my thesis, but I don't think it was, I think it just showed all the same stuff as your Karolinska and whatnot. So uh, I don't think we ended up publishing it either, but I feel like grogginess sort of as a, a colloquial term is what people relate to when you're, when you're talking to our beloved lay people that are tuning in. Shout out to the beloved lay people tuning in. This is for you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as much as I love the existing measures, especially the sleep inertia questionnaire, I think it's really challenging to tease apart sleep inertia, that experience, and things like anhedonia, which is a symptom that we all experience to some degree to two, but is often very heightened in depressive disorders and mood disorders where people you know, have a lack of interest in things they previously enjoyed or just kind of have a resistance to the day. And I don't think we have great measures right now to separate sleep inertia from anhedonia. And so I think there's some work there that could be really nice on the subjective front, because I always struggle with this. And again, you're the expert and there may not be an answer yet. I mean, there's some things we do know, I think, of what is normative, but can you define what is like normal sleep inertia? I think that's a great question. And I would... I guess, caveat my response in that most of the research that I've done or all of the research that I've done has been looking at healthy populations. You know, we often heavily screen people. So they're the healthiest of the healthy in our population when we do these studies. And so that is very distinct from, as you've been sort of alluding to, sleep inertia as a symptom in other disorders, whether they be sleep disorders or mood disorders. Um, Since I think speaking with you last, I've become sort of more interested in that clinical application and tried to do more reading in that area. But I guess the sleep inertia that I've studied thus far is almost the normal sleep inertia in a way, right? Because it is these heavily screened populations that don't have any sleep issues, don't have any other comorbidities. And while we might put them in scenarios that exacerbate their sleep inertia, so sleep depriving them a bit before, waking them up in the middle of the night, that transition of, again, the brain sort of awakening from sleep into wake, I personally see as a sort of quote unquote normal sleep inertia. And so I think if if your symptoms of sleep inertia are returning to normal baseline, whatever you want to call it, within that sort of 20 to 30 minute range, and you haven't been sort of extremely sleep deprived before, and it's not four in the morning, then yeah, if if your sleep inertia is lasting longer than that, then maybe that becomes more of some other underlying thing that's driving that sleep inertia. And it's not just a natural progression of your brain sort of waking up. I think that covers what we know now. But I find it hard for myself to even have an estimation of how long it takes me for my sleep inertia to dissipate. And there's certainly going to be error bars on each side. But one of the complicating factors is I often have a coffee within like 15 minutes of waking up. And so how much of it is my natural sleep inertia dissipating versus this stimulant I'm putting my body that's combating the natural process. So I think it's just like a really challenging thing. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring this 
research onto the platform is to nudge some researchers out there to get more interested in it. And let's tease it apart because I think there's a lot of implications. You know, we were talking pre-show about how sleep inertia itself, this blurred experience state of being between sleep and wake doesn't fit nicely into any of our kind of predominant models of sleep-wake regulation and sleep state transitioning. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with those models, but clearly there's something else here. And it's really important when you start thinking about sleep inertia and lucid dreaming and, and all these other kind of like mixed states and hybrid states of potentially moving the ball forward there. And I think sleep inertia is a nice construct to kind of latch onto to move the theoretical framework of sleep lake regulation and sleep states transitioning forward. But we're not going to be here proposing any new models today. So I'll just kind of leave it there. And you mentioned it earlier a little bit. I, I alluded to into in the orientation of some factors that will moderate the experience of sleep inertia. And this paper itself was focused on a unique factor to move the ball forward there, which is biological sex. Now, for the listeners, again, Cassie, from what you've gleaned, what others have unearthed, what sort of actual factors do influence the severity and time course of sleep inertia? Yeah, so I guess recapping factors that we've mentioned before, the time of day or time relative to your body clock. So you're more likely to have more severe sleep inertia when waking close to your circadian low. You're more likely to have sleep inertia if you have had sort of prior sleep loss, whether that's acute sleep loss, so you've stayed awake for a really long time and then you're having a recovery sleep, or if you just have chronic sleep loss or chronic sleep restriction over multiple days, um, that can also exacerbate your sleep inertia. And most evidence points towards sleep stage influencing your, your sleep inertia. So if you wake up from slow wave sleep or that sort of deep sleep, you're more likely to have more severe sleep inertia. So they're kind of the three main ones and ones that we've known for uh, quite a while now. But moving forward, the sort of individual factors, um, obviously this current paper that we're discussing looks like biological sex can play, play uh, an important role. And there was a paper looking at perception of sleep inertia as a sort of a, an individual trait. And they actually found that people were more similar, had more similar ratings of their sleepiness upon awakening within subjects than they did between subjects. So, and that was under different conditions. So they sleep deprived people and they had baseline sleep. And so we would expect that we would see a big difference between sleep inertia under those two conditions. But what they found was that it was actually the, the bigger difference was across subjects themselves. So there seemed to be some sort of individual trait. And they also looked at those who were most vulnerable or resilient to just sleep loss itself. And the trait that they saw in sleep inertia was sort of independent from how people dealt with sleep loss itself. So it seems like it's potentially some independent mechanism. In that study, they only had the K, uh, I think it was the KSS, but it was a subjective measure. There were no objective measures. So not sure how that translates to objective results. And uh, they didn't report on sex differences. So it's unclear whether some of those trait differences might be related to sex. And there was a paper that I was really excited about that was sort of looking at morning alertness 
and relating it to factors from the previous day and what meal you had that morning. But the morning alertness was categorized as the three hours following breakfast and breakfast was an hour after waking. So it didn't quite capture that uh, sleep inertia zone, but otherwise I was I was ready to be able to provide you all the answers there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the main ones that we know of for now anyway. Yeah. And and I, I think you knocked it out of the park again, out of the park again, like what we know now, right? We're still in its infancy uh, of pushing this forward. And in preparation for this, I saw the paper that I passed along to you, but you, you had already had it and it was already on your, your desk to read. I haven't gone fully through it. I've just, I'm about two thirds through right now, but it's Ogawa and colleagues in the Journal of Physiological Anthropology. And it was looking at the relationships between the snooze alarm and the degree and severity of sleep inertia upon awakening. And to me, like, it makes a lot of sense because I think it maps on to what we already know in some ways, which is what you were describing about which stage of sleep you're probably being awoken from in some capacity and it not being a natural transition where you're moving through different cycles and kind of landing on a space that's more readily accessible to go into wakefulness. But it was fascinating to me that somebody finally looked at it, that the use of the snooze alarm associated with more severe sleep inertia. Is that something you had thought about or or is that kind of new for you too? Yeah, I'm really pleased that that study got done because it's one of those ones that's, you know, you 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 jot down on a sticky note and you'll do one day and then never get around to it because certainly from the s- small amount of media interviews that I've had, that's something that, you know, journalists want to know about, like, oh, should I hit the snooze button or not? You know, when you talk about waking up, that's sort of the first thing that people think about. Should I snooze to snooze or not to snooze? And so I saw that there was the paper by Mattingly and colleagues, I think in sleep, about snoozing generally and was kind of a scoping study as nothing had really been done in that space um, to sort of, you know, set the research agenda for where we should go next. And so I was really excited for the Ogawa paper that they, I think, quite nicely extended that work and sort of took what the Mattingly paper showed and sort of followed up on it. And I I quite liked the study design in that paper too. I'm always sort of, again, like excited to read stuff about sleep inertia and then sometimes the methods sort of don't quite (laughs) fit the bill. But yeah, it was was really interesting that in, as you say, in this one, they had people either have a snooze alarm go off every five minutes for 20 minutes, or they just have the final alarm at the end. And no surprise, the sleep in the that 20 minutes was reduced in the snooze alarm condition. But that people self-rated, again, that uh, they felt more, I think it was a, a global vigor scale that they used, um, but that was improved in the people who didn't snooze. Yeah, before this study came out, my sort of, general advice on that question was if you can sleep for 30 minutes longer and you're not going to get out out of bed during that time anyway don't have a snooze button and just get 30 minutes extra sleep other rather than you know degrading that sleep for 30 minutes at the end given that uh most people are cutting their time in bed shorter than they should in the first place that that 30 minutes could be a pretty meaningful difference 
but to your point of you know what's driving trait differences it might be trait differences in the sleep itself and what kind of stage people are typically at or typically in before awakening so i always think about the uh napping studies where they divide people into habitual nappers and habitual non-nappers based on how frequently they report their napping and again one of those studies that has never sort of been done but my assumption is that potentially those people who define themselves as non-nappers may have worse sleep inertia after napping and so they avoid napping and I put myself in that category I don't know which which category you're in Jesse but and there have been studies of nappers and non-nappers showing that those in the non-napping group tend to sleep deeper during those naps. So it might be that they have a tendency to actually go into a deeper sleep and then wake up feeling worse than they started with. And so that's why you avoid it altogether. But yeah, which, which camp are you in, Jesse, on, on the nap front? Oh, uh, that's a complicated question, I suppose. In in this day and age, through my journey of graduate school, I think upregulated physiology a little bit. So the idea of napping is desirable, but the actual ability to enter a nap state, not as accessible as when it was pre-graduate school. I'm, I'm really looking forward to returning to maybe a little bit more of a baseline physiologically and uh, <laughs> maybe bringing in, you know, 20, 30 minute naps in the middle of the day because those sound absolutely lovely. I'm more of a deep rest guy, I would say, you know, lying on the floor, you know, pratyama position, get some deep breathing, but I rarely drift off. But if I do, I find them restorative. So usually, I think kind of in a different camp on that front, uh, I don't necessarily avoid them. They're just not available at this juncture for me. But I think it does tie into, you know, the experience of those with idiopathic hypersomnia, where they are easily able to enter a sleep state, unfortunately, at just about any point throughout their their day. And uh, I actually have not looked at studies that have analyzed the staging of sleep that they have during naps. There's probably some stuff out there, but I don't, I'm not familiar with it, but the general or typically within idiopathic hypersomnia, they report the naps regardless of length, short, long, doesn't matter of non-restorative. And perhaps that is something about being able to enter say like N2 or N3 easier in a napping fashion than somebody else. And then having that pervasive sleep inertia post hoc, I think it's really interesting. And I, I just think that's also very interesting. Again, there's not much we can really do with it just based on this paper, but I was just like, wow, that's weird. The fact that in your study, the females reported more sleep inertia and the data right now supports that there is a, a differential sex distribution in idiopathic hypersomnia where females have a higher rates of diagnosis and some of that may be more willingness to report. But maybe there is something here that we're not actually being able to capture, whether it's related to like core body temperature or something like that, that is a physiological difference between the sexes that is driving this. I don't know. It was just something that was like, I couldn't ignore that like sleep inertia is common in idiopathic hypersomnia and that there is this kind of female driven differences in in your study and in that diagnostic distribution, if you will. Uh, so I think that's very fascinating and something that I kind of want to look at further for my own research and my own program in that area. And we're dancing a little bit here, but I want to steer us back to 
talking with the expert on sleep inertia section, if you will. And we talked about factors that are likely to moderate positively or negatively the the sleep inertia that occurs afterwards. Now, what sort of, and I, I steal your word, what sort of countermeasures, if you will, I always say strategies or techniques, but I like countermeasures. What sort of countermeasures do we know of that are efficacious for attenuating the negative effects of sleep inertia, either a priori or post hoc? Yeah, so to to reframe a priori and post hoc, I tend to use the terms proactive and reactive countermeasures. Uh, so your proactive countermeasures are sort of avoiding all the things that I mentioned exacerbate it. So try to get good sleep before, try not to wake up right at 4 a.m. But in the real world, it's very, I mean, especially for on-call workers who don't know when they're going to get that call, particularly for extended operations and, and shift workers who we know are typically carrying chronic sleep loss um, and all sorts of circadian misalignment. It's very hard to actually implement those proactive strategies in the real world. So looking at reactive countermeasures, we're focusing on, okay, so you've woken up with sleep inertia. What do you do about it? What can you put in place once you've woken up? So when I did my thesis, I sort of collated what was out there currently, and there wasn't a lot of rigor there weren't a lot of rigorous studies on on this but there was a lot sort of dipping toes into different into different ways of managing it and since then sort of i just kind of summarized all of that in a review paper as a call to arms of you know let's let's look at these things um and see whether they actually work there's been a lot of uh labs around the world that are looking at these reactive countermeasures now and uh so for from our lab we were looking at light so blue enriched light in the lab, looking at exposure to light during a nocturnal awakening, we found that it was able to sort of at least modestly improve both performance and subjective alertness and mood. And our translational study is under review currently, so I don't know whether to give you a <laughs> a, a brief insight into that. No spoilers, just teasers. No spoilers, just these as well. There were some challenges in the translation, I'll put it that way, but otherwise there was a trend towards uh, similar results. But papers that have looked at the really bright blue enriched light exposure, but in sort of the morning during a sort of normal habitual awakening, they didn't really show any improvement, at least on those objective performances. So it might be that light um, is more efficacious, as you say, at night compared to during the day. Other labs have looked at exercise. So a short bout of high intensity exercise as soon as you get up has great theoretical implications. It's increasing your heart rate and your your blood flow and your cortisol and all these things that we know are sort of dampened while you're asleep. And so we think, well, if we can get those things firing faster than, you know, just a slow wake up, that might overcome sleep inertia. Um, but so far, all we found is that that will make you feel more alert, but it won't necessarily improve your performance. And as I say, we were going to look at uh, temperature manipulation before COVID hit, but I think Ken Wright's group is is looking at that, so some preliminary data at the sleep meeting um, and has some promising results there. And otherwise, caffeine is one that we still kind of put in the proactive camp because 
it takes about 20 minutes for caffeine to have an effect. So if you take it when you first wake up and your sleep inertia naturally dissipates 20 minutes later and your caffeine kicks in after 20 minutes, it might help to sort of minimize any sort of long duration sleep inertia that you might have. But even the caffeine gums that taste like horror coated in mint, I don't, they have a placebo, but it's so obvious which one's which, Um, (laughs) at least for my super taster uh, experience. Yeah, even those gums that are supposed to be absorbed through the mouth and so supposed to have a quicker impact, the studies have shown that it's 12 to 15 minutes at best that they're getting there. So for, again, emergency service workers, uh, some of them, when they get a call, they have to be in that fire truck, in that rescue helicopter within 30 seconds, within a minute. So yeah, caffeine doesn't quite work as a reactive countermeasure yet. Um, And there was actually a paper, sorry, I'm rambling now, but about slow release caffeine so again, more proactive, but taking some some sort of caffeine capsule before you go to bed and then that sort of hitting once you wake up. Or there's the nappuccino. If you uh, have a 20-minute nap and you take uh, coffee before that 20-minute nap, then 20 minutes later, you'll hopefully have the benefit of whatever sleep you got during that 20 minutes and you get the caffeine to give you a boost over any sleep inertia you might have uh, upon awakening there. It was a beautifully coherent and cogent ramble. I will say that much. (laughs) But I mean, as you pointed out, this is the real challenge, right? With the proactive strategies, they seem to be the most effective at this time for a rapid effect, right? If we need to, you know, we can't wait the 15, 20 minutes. But the challenge there is we don't always know when the person needs to wake up, right? Like that's where the nappuccino is helpful is you know that you're taking a 20, 30 minute nap or whatever it may be so you can time it out. But when you're on call, you don't have that that information. So fruitful line of research, let's create some sort of reactive, not post hoc, reactive strategies or not strategies, countermeasures that can be used to rapidly combat or attenuate the deleterious effects of sleep inertia. I think it's brilliant. And I think I saw the same thing at the sleep conference related to maybe the cold exposure. And, and that's something that's been top of mind for me as well is like just cold plunges in general, man, that'll wake you up. But not everyone has access, so it becomes a a more of an accessibility issue on that front. Yeah, field deployability of countermeasures is a huge part of this research. So given how early we are in this research, a lot of it needs to be lab-based to just demonstrate the sort of mechanisms and the theory of it before... Um, translating it to the real world. But that translation step is so critical before we start recommending that emergency workers just all buy these particular glasses or all get a plunge pool. And one important thing that I like to always make sure that I mention when we're talking about things that can make sleep inertia worse and things that can make sleep inertia better is that sleep inertia can happen after any wake up. So even if you have your eight hours time in bed, you wake up at your habitual time and you don't have any prior sleep-wake problems, you still can experience sleep inertia. So it's always, even if you do your best proactively to minimize it, it still might occur. So it's always good to just be aware that it might need to be managed. And in terms of the the reactive countermeasures that we're testing, Again, each study can only test it in one scenario. So we're testing 
nocturnal awakenings from slow wave sleep. And so we we try to test things in sort of the worst case scenario. So you're waking up at night, you're sleep deprived, and you're working out a deep sleep. So hopefully, if the countermeasure works in the worst case scenario, then it will also work in less uh, worse scenarios, um, better scenarios, one might say, if they spoke English fluently. Yeah, we don't know how that might work in, in, in other scenarios, basically. So that requires a lot more research and we can't recommend something right now. Um, and it might be that it's a combination of these measures that is the solution or individual tailored solutions. Maybe exercise works for one person and light works for another. So to be continued. To be continued indeed. And I did want to spend some time in our episode talking about measurement, but I think I'm gonna have to table that for when we have you on three, four or five years from now and whoever's future hosting this podcast to discuss the the next iteration of sleep and inertia research as you produce it. Because I had a lot of thoughts too, but again, it's not just about like also the implications here for the on-call individuals, but we also think about like even just capturing data, right? Like it's important with this information about sleep inertia, maybe we shouldn't have participants filling out questionnaires, sleep diaries within that 30 minutes hour window upon awakening. We might be capturing bias of sleep inertia and not their actual reporting of sleep quality as the sleep inertia dissipates, things like that. So it's not just about the actual application of day-to-day functionality and performance and, and being able to be safe at your job and to help others as well. It, it has implications for the research side of things and actually collecting it and also clinically too, the information you're capturing there. So there's a lot to tease apart here. And I know you have a lot in your brain, a lot of good stuff, maybe some things related to possums, maybe some stuff related to whales, who knows, but a lot of good stuff related to sleep inertia and, and the future research. Immediately, Cassie, you know, just thinking about this investigation in particular and the stuff you're doing, where do you foresee yourself heading in kind of the immediate future in sleep inertia research? So I would like to do more research on the line of reactive countermeasures, trialing different things, and again, that translational piece. But something else and related to the publication that we're sort of focusing on is about self-perception. And we asked, how sleepy do you feel? And then we had them perform a task. What I'm kicking myself for not including, because I've included it in every other study I've done, is a subjective scale asking how well do you think you performed? So actually a self-perception of performance, because I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, a lot of times we have the KSS and the PBT, and when they don't match, we say that people aren't aware of their impairment, but maybe they just, they don't feel sleepy, but they might be able to still self-perceive that their performance might be impaired. So I think having that sort of uh, metacognition questions about both how how well do you think you will perform and then how well do you think you performed having done a task. And we have um, a researcher in our lab, um, Dr. Rachel Jansen, whose background is in metacognition. So I'm really excited to work with her to uh, make sure I'm asking those questions in the right ways because, you know, it's just like when we see sleep studies done by metacognitive experts, they're probably asking the sleep questions the wrong way. So this this way we can, uh, with our powers combined, make the, the ultimate self-perception and sleep inertia 
study. So that's where I'm excited to move forward as well. I love it. And I think that's an incredibly important piece of the puzzle here. And I love that you're drawing attention again to the import of multi multidisciplinary work and working within a team and leveraging each person's expertise. We don't have to do science alone. I'll say it again. We do not have to do science alone, even though it kind of feels that way. So great stuff there. I look forward for all of that to come out in the future and as well as the teaser you dropped on uh, your hopefully soon to be published work on that front also. I'll look out for that. But before I let you go, Cassie, uh, again, I really appreciate you taking this time to to talk sleep inertia with me, to talk your research and to showcase your awesome personality. Before I let you go, though, I do have one final question. It's arguably the hardest question that I ask any guest. Every guest gets the same question. Uh, and you have free reign here. So oftentimes when we design science, we are constrained by resources, by time, by uh, maybe a tenure committee or something that's guiding us in a certain direction. We have we have uh, you know bumper lanes up that don't allow us to deviate into the directions we want to go. For this question, Cassie, all that's gone. You have no constraints, no limitations. If you had unlimited resources and all the power to do whatever you wanted, what research question would you tackle? And maybe how would you go about doing it? So this is a personal interest. And I think I would also, if I can, take the liberty of ignoring the boundaries of physics in order to test this also. But I would love to be able to study whether changes in gravity, so under zero gravity or microgravity conditions, whether that affects sleep with everything else held constant. And so we currently don't have a way of doing that. Or if someone could invent an anti-gravity chamber uh, with unlimited money and resources, then we might be able to attempt that. But the uh, yeah, that's kind of a personal question that I love answered. But at the moment, we have so many confounding variables and factors that make it hard to really tease apart the influence of gravity itself on sleep. That is wild. And I really hope there's a listener out there that can help you with that one, because it's not just building the anti-gravity chamber. Then it's also about getting our technology to work in this anti-gravity chamber too. And man, that would be awesome. So I look forward to that in the next, well, eon. How about that? Hopefully sooner than that. But uh, really cool stuff, Cassie. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I, I wish we could do it longer, but uh, I, I want to keep these at a certain length. And I also want you to get back to your awesome life in San Francisco. And I can't wait. It'll just be a, a bit of a, maybe a month longer before I get to join you. But I look forward to that as well. And so all I have to say is thank you again for joining me and uh, take care of yourself. You as well, Jesse, and thank you so much for all the time and passion that you put into these podcasts. I don't think people realize the amount of effort that goes into these, and Jesse makes it probably sound just perfect at the other end and easy to do, but uh, it's really a credit and testimony to Jesse's efforts that make these uh, so special. So thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Cassie. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.